On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about food prices because they're going up. Question is, why? We're also talking about debt, and I don't just mean your debt or the country's debt or company's debt. All the debt in the world, the amount has been released. How much money we as a world owe, it is going to blow your brain when you hear how much money is owed. And speaking of money, let's just stay on that one because why not? We're going to talk about James Harden. You may also be surprised to find out how much an NBA player has turned down as a contract offer. I'll tell you what, I would play for that amount. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We learned today uh, from Statistics Canada that inflation has jumped nearly, we're getting close to a percentage point since this time last year. And the leading cause, they say, the price of food. Now, you may think, okay, well, this is because of shortages. It doesn't seem that's the case. And the evidence behind that is it seems lots of food is being sold. This week, Metro Inc., Metro Stores, reported a fourth quarter profit of $187 million, up from $167 million a year before Loblaws, Loblaw companies. Uh, reported on November 12, profit of $342 million, up from 331 in the same quarter last year. Empire Company, which is Sobeys, uh, reported its most uh, reported a profit of $192 million, up from $131 million the year before. Food clearly is being sold. People are buying food. So what is going on? Why are prices all of a sudden rising? Uh, if we're going to talk about this, there is only one person to turn to. Uh, he is the food professor. He is a professor at Dalhousie University. His name is Sylvain Charlebois. He is Canada's leader on the whole issue of food and food issues. And we appreciate always when you join us, doctor, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. So you see these numbers from these grocery stores that, uh, these profits and you start to wonder, is this simply a case where these stores are saying, Look, we know you have to eat even in a crisis, and we know you don't have a lot else to do except eat a lot of people in this crisis. So we're just going to crank up our prices and see what happens. <laughs> there's, a, there's an everlasting awkward uh, correlation between profits in the food industry and, and of course, uh, food security. Uh, as soon as grocers uh, make a profit, people will think about gouging and, and people being taken, taken advantage of. And, of course, it's, it's easy to think that, but the, the, but the food industry is, is a complicated place. You have, to, you have to remember these companies, in order to generate a profit of $150, 200000000 million a quarter, they have to uh, run uh, huge networks. Uh, margins are very low, uh, generally speaking, and 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 the level of capitalization is beyond many other industries. Uh, in many other industries, margins are much much higher, but nobody talks about them. If GM actually makes twenty percent, nobody's going to care. Uh, people will be happy for Oshawa and and other places. But uh, if Metro or Loblaws make too much money, then it becomes a problem. So that that fine line is very difficult to uh, to. To draw uh, between profits and making company because you want companies to to be successful. It's the only way to survive in capitalism. You want to make sure that that companies do make a profit, or else uh, we wouldn't have a network of grocers to feed us. And so, uh, in the end, 
it always comes up every single year. But now, because of COVID, because of what we went through this year, it's a particularly sensitive issue. Well, and, and I think you're absolutely right on one point, and that is I, I, I'm sure there are people who have complained. Uh, in fact, I'm positive people have complained, but I haven't heard a lot of complaints about, for example, Amazon and their profits have gone through the roof or Tesla with Elon Musk, who just, I think, just tur- came into number second in the world or third in the world in in richest man alive. I mean, these things that are also going on, no one that I'm hearing is complaining too loudly about them, but food we get bent out of shape about. That's right, exactly. And so... The, so it's it's really I think it's important to accept the fact that in the food industry, if we want choice, if we want quality, uh, if we want access and affordability, eventually uh, some companies have to make a profit. Whether uh, you're a farmer, uh, a processor, or a grocer, I mean, bear in mind some farmers out there are very far removed from consumers are making actually a lot of money. Uh, and if farmers make money, people don't complain. But it is there. Well, there are also <laughs> yeah, and there are also, and we can't forget this. Although I don't know if it makes a difference, there are different levels of grocery stores. I mean, Sobeys and Fortinos and a few others are generally pricier than as Food Basics or a No Frills or something. Do we know that all the types of stores are making profit, or is just just the higher end places? Well, we have an oligopoly in Canada. Let's face it. Fortinos is owned by Loblaw. And and Loblaw will will have probably 25 different banners. Uh, so No Frills is operated and owned by Loblaw as well. Zers is owned by Loblaw. So it's it really each and every grocer will have a different uh, segment or a different product or a different strategy to cater to specific segments. So No Frills will attract. A certain kind of consumer. Fortinos will attract a certain kind of consumer, and that's how they make their money. That's how they actually make a living, and and it, and they do it very well. We have some really outstanding grocers in Canada. The challenge, of course, is that we have an oligopoly. We only have about five players selling ninety percent of all the food retail in the country. And that would be Loblaw, Sobeys, Metro, Costco and Walmart. And, and so they dictate the rules. And sometimes it goes too far. Example, the bread cartel, the, bri- mm-hmm. the bread fixing scandal, which actually went on for 14 years. Another example, Loblaw received $12 million in, in grant money from the liberals. Yes, for the freezers. Trudeau, for freezers, exactly. Right. And, and that's when you wonder, okay, do, we, do they really need $12 million from taxpayers when they actually make a profit like that? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're talking about inflation, which is going up in this country, and Statistics Canada is mostly pointing the finger at food prices as the reason for that. Uh, Sylvain Charlebois is the food doctor We've been talking about why this is happening. And uh, Sylvain, is this, is, is there, um, have the costs of producing food in this pandemic, uh, you and I have talked about this before, and it seems that there may be some challenges, but have the cost to produce or deliver food gone way, way up? Oh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, uh, there, there is one example out there uh, which really demonstrate how, how uh, much pressure the food industry is under right now. If you look at the price of chicken, uh, and I'm using chicken as an example because it's a supply-managed 
um, commodity. So what that means is that farmers are compensated based on the cost of production in Canada. So you produce chicken, you're paid based on how much it costs you to produce a chicken. That's how it works. Supply management is allows farmers to produce what we need as a country. And chicken prices have gone up 7% since June. It's unheard of. Typically, we have supply management in Canada to keep prices stable at retail, essentially, and it allows us to make sure that we have plenty of food supplies all year round for dairy, chicken, and eggs. Now, when you see chicken going up 7%, you know there's something wrong. Uh, you know that it's costing more for farmers to produce chicken. It's costing more for processors as well. Grocers, I think everyone would have noticed that uh, grocery stores are managed very differently now uh, because of uh, public health protocols. It's just costing more. E-commerce, uh, in this country, we're seeing grocers investing for over $12 billion dollars of, of, uh, of capital over the next five years. Someone has to pay for that <laughs> at some point. Yeah, we and just so don't like to. I think food prices are absolutely going up, yeah. Yeah, and we just don't like to. We, we don't think of the production value or any of the other stuff when we go to the store. We just see the price and figure, and then you see the, the profits that the stores are making. We say, look, they're gouging us, but there is something behind it. You see, over the last decade, uh, the, the food inflation rate has outpaced the general inflation rate. This is... 2020 is not new. Uh, this has been going on for a decade. We, we are slowly departing the era of cheap food in Canada. Uh, I, I believe that very, very strongly because, well, in the United States, food is cheap. Food will continue to be, to be cheap, but they eat very differently. We are getting closer to, uh, to the European model where uh, a typical household would spend 15 17% of, of its budget on food. Uh, in the United States, it's 6 6%. Wow, wow. Yeah, in Canada, we're basically in between. A few years ago, we were at 9 We're closer to 10 now. And my guess over the next few years, we'll actually reach 11 perhaps even 12%. So people, I think this is, this is not just a, a, a socioeconomic shift. This is a cultural shift as well. Mm. And it will redefine our relationship with food. We have heard that uh, while this is all going on, that uh, visits to food banks and things are going way up. Uh, and that's, yeah. I think, very understandable and predictable under the circumstances. People are out of work and they're hurting. I get that. But l l let's dive just for a minute or so deeper into the weeds here, because some food in this country is taxed. Some food in this country isn't taxed. And sometimes sorting out which is which can be a giant headache. When we're in the middle of a difficult time like this, should the government eliminate all food taxes and say, look, just to make it affordable for people for now in a temporary thing, we're going to say no tax on your food. Just make sure you can eat. Well, I mean, it's, this is a moral issue, uh, I think. Uh, I mean, if you go to the restaurant, I, I think most Canadians would appreciate that a tax is appropriate. Paying a tax on food served at the sure. restaurant is appropriate. Um, at retail, uh, there's, there's, there's a line there, I think. Uh, the big discussion in the food industry right now is related to the carbon tax. This is the hidden tax. It's not retail. You don't see it, but it's, a, it's, it's impacting everyone in the food industry. 
And there is an argument out there right now saying, well, we are seeing prices going up because of the carbon tax. Now, is it a factor? Well, likely. I think it is a factor. But is, is there a strong correlation between the carbon tax and uh, retail prices? We don't know. It's too early to tell. But if you look at BC, for example, they've had a carbon tax since, I believe, 2008, uh, much higher than, than across Canada. And we failed as a lab. We actually looked into BC food prices, and we did fail to establish any sort of correlation between the implementation of the carbon tax in that province and food retail prices. We didn't see a correlation at all. It is... Um you know what, I have a feeling there's going to be an awful lot of people looking into prices and things like that with food, especially oh, yeah. as they continue to go up. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, we always love you when you take a few minutes to join us. Thanks so much by tonight. By the way, uh, Scott, if I, if I may, we are Please. releasing Canada's food price report on December 8th. Uh, that's in partnership with the University of Guelph, University of Saskatchewan, and University of British Columbia. December well, 8th. then you can mark it. You can mark it into your book on December eighth, where you're going to be speaking that evening. So uh, there we go. <laughs> you're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Institute of International Finance is a global group that represents 400 or so banks and financial institutions, and it released some numbers today that really I don't think we can really fathom these numbers. It says that global debt, so not just North America, global debt has risen $15 trillion since January and now stands at $272 trillion. And as I say, that's really hard to fathom since none of us really have a concept what a trillion of anything is, let alone a trillion dollars. So to simplify, I had to do the little math today. My math is always dangerous, but I double check, so I think I'm right. If you spend a million dollars every hour, 24 hours a day, nonstop, and you had to spend a trillion dollars, you would not run out of money for 411 years. And that's $1 trillion. To spend all the money the world owes, the $272 trillion, you would have to do that $1 million an hour for 24 hours a day for 111,792 years, 25 times longer than it's been between now and the time the Great Pyramids were built. It's a lot of debt. It's a lot of debt. The question is, what does it mean? Well, let me bring in someone who I know can answer this better than anyone else. His name is Dr. Not Dr. I keep forgetting. Is Marvin Ryder, a man who should have a doctor in front of his name, but is Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Sir, how are you this evening? I'm fine, thank you, and, and bless you for that. I, I'm working on it. I'm, 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 I don't know who to talk to at this point, but I'm going to find someone who will give you that. Yeah, don't worry about it. It's, it's, it's great stuff. I don't mind at all. Um, so you talk about these numbers that, that yep. there, no one can really understand, but here's the existential question as I think about all this. If everybody in the world is in debt, is anybody really in debt? <laughs> or is everybody in debt? Well, let's, let me just roll you back a little bit, Scott. We'll get to your question, but let me roll you back a bit. So you mentioned this Institute for International Finance, and they got talking about debt. So what debt are we talking about here? They took all the government debt in Canada, that would be the federal deficit, and all the other debts of all the provinces and municipalities, and that was one bucket. Then they took all the debt of the individuals, the households in Canada, that's another bucket, and then they went to all the companies in Canada that have gone out and borrowed money, and if you take bucket one and add it to bucket two and add it to bucket three, you've got a whole lot of debt here in Canada, 
Our debt is well below, above our GDP, national GDP, and we often think of the GDP as being like a person's income. When you start borrowing more than you take in, boy, can you carry all that? And the answer can be yes, as long as you have a plan to, over time, bring that down. But one of the reasons for this report being released was this year, 2020, not coming down. In fact, if anything, the numbers are going up. And as they get thinking about it, they say, well, you know, we're not out of COVID yet. So if we project to the end of the year, there could be another two, three, four, five trillion dollars spent. And then in 2021, we're still not out of the woods. So they were trying to figure out where these numbers might be going. And as you correctly say, the number is absolutely astronomical. By the year 2030, 10 years from now, the world, that's both the governments and the people and the companies, could well owe $350, $380 trillion. Um, and so then, you know, who do they owe it to? Well, in a way... Exactly, exactly. In a way, they owe it to each other. Now, what, what we do is we allow financial institutions to loan more money than they actually have deposited. So I deposit some money in a bank, like a TD bank or a Royal Bank, and they say, good, all right, that's, that's a nice amount of money. But the government says, we'll let you actually loan out a little more than you have on deposit to help you know, the wheels of commerce, help people buy houses and to help people buy cars and to help businesses grow. And so uh, it's not, a, a, again, a zero-sum game. We do actually, in a sense, print money through debt to allow these things to go. What they put out in their study, and I think this is also worth noting, as high as these debt levels are, how do you bring them down? We call that deleveraging. How do you reduce your debt? Well, you know what you and I have to do as individuals. We're going to have to tighten the, the belt a little bit here and say, all right, I guess we're not getting a new car next year, and I guess we're not taking that trip. We need to pay down our debt. That's not that hard for individuals to do. And, in fact, we tend to see over somebody's lifetime the debt you take on early to acquire a house. Well, you pay off your mortgage and eventually you're debt-free. Individuals, given the fullness of time, meaning 20, 30 years, can actually bring their debt levels down. But what we haven't noticed is either businesses or governments reducing their debt loads. In fact, if anything, we see that go up and up and up and up. Well, yes. And so a little more math here that I did and double checked again, just to be sure, um, by the amount, if we're talking about a $1.2 trillion, just Canadian deficit or debt, and that's what we're hearing as a round number, that's about $32,000 per Canadian family of four, about $125,000 that every Canadian family owes. Uh, first of all, most could never pay that back on top of everything else they have to do. And even if you tax the living heck out of the top 1%, you're not coming close to being able to get rid of that debt. So we're going to never get rid of it. Mm -hmm. you're, not, you're not wrong. Uh, in fact, the whole idea is for both governments and for companies that often they just keep carrying the debt. They never try to get it to zero. They try to use leverage as a, as a way to, again, extend their resources. And as long as you keep the debt load at something that you can service, in other words, you can pay the interest on it, you're allowed to keep that debt for a long, 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 long time. You and I have talked about this before. The Second World War was fought primarily with borrowed money, and when that war came to an end, it'd be quite wrong for me to tell you that we paid off that Second World War debt. Instead, what we did is we grew the economy, and we found we were better able to carry that debt, but we've never paid off our debt from the Second World War, and that's 80 years ago. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The world 
that is governments, companies, and individuals, the world owes right now $272 trillion, which again, if you just, after we're done, just try and wrap your head around that. It is, it is a, an absolutely stunning, stunning amount that just seems impossible that any realistic possibility exists that's ever going to be paid back. But Marvin, not to get too, um, I don't know, ethereal, but I mean, all what this suggests to me is that by definition, all of us are leading a life that we can't afford. Am I missing something or, or is that the very definition of what this is? Well, in, in a sense. So if I could take you back a hundred years ago, generally speaking, what your parents would say to you is live within your man. Don't go out and buy something that you can't afford or buy something that if you only have the cash for it. We were tend to be a bit more of a cash-based economy. Uh, today, we have these wonderful things called credit cards, which means I don't have to sit and wait to buy something. I can put it on my card. And likewise, I don't have to wait until I have the whole price of a house in my bank account. I can put a certain amount down and pay the rest of it over time. So in a sense, yes, we are living beyond our means. But if you budget it correctly, you can pay those things down over time. Uh, before our break, by the way, you were talking about $1.2 trillion in Canada and the 32 or 40000 I forget what the number was exactly, that was added to everybody. But that would be on top of whatever debt they already have. And you mm -hmm. know, in, in, in uh, the case of Hamilton today, and even Burlington, you know, you want to buy a house, you don't get a starter home for $120,000. You're looking at three fifty, four hundred, and a nicer home easily starts to get closer to $800,000. So even if you had $200,000 down on an $800,000 home, you're taking on $600,000 in debt. Probably that would be four times your annual income, five times, six times your annual income. So th this is, again, do you wait until you can afford it? Well, if you do, you'll move in just three days before you die. Or do you take that gamble, <laughs> get, get the leverage, and then try to pay it off over time? And, um, and so that's why I just think it's important for people to realize I'm not sure we're living beyond our means, but this is the way we're financing our life through very uh, aggressive use of debt. Yes, and I don't want to make it even worse, but you also left out uh, the fact that we also owe money provincially, which was not counted in this. So, I mean, your your family of four, the amount, if you add it all together, right. that you owe personally and as a taxpayer um, begins to make your head spin a little bit. Now, according to this report, no country in the world increased its debt to GDP ratio during the pandemic more than Canada. Now you have explained very well on this show. That's why we keep bringing you back that this is probably manageable because we were in a pretty good spot to begin with. But when we start hearing numbers that we are increasing this number more than anyone else, does it suggest we need to take a toll here or take stock and start to slow this down a little bit? Uh, so let's again give people a couple more numbers. So Canada had the worst growth in the last year. We grew by 75% in a debt-to-GDP ratio. The next best was Japan, or the next worst was Japan at a little over 50%. The United States went up nearly 45%. So everybody added debt, and everybody's debt-to-GDP number went up. Ours was the, was the biggest. Now, in this ratio debt to GDP, it can go up either because of the amount of debt you've added, that's the numerator, or it can go because your GDP went down. And in a way, I think this, is, this study is a little unfair that they've released it today because we're still in the middle of a pandemic, and a pandemic which has 
uh, hurt our economy. You know, we, we have locked out various chunks of our economy. And even now, Hamilton's in a, in a red zone status. We've, we've said to many restaurants, okay, you can deliver food, but you can't be open. And so we've, we've brought our GDP down almost on purpose to fight the COVID. I'd like to see what these numbers look like when we can get the economy reopened, even though that may not take uh, or might take a year or more before we get there. So it's a bit unfair to take this percentage because we had the double whammy. Yes, we borrowed more to pay for all those COVID things at the same time that this year our GDP has shrunk because we froze chunks of the economy. Once we unfreeze those, that denominator will go up, and chances are we may even have one of the biggest declines in that debt-to-GDP ratio. It, it, you know, it's one of those things that bounces around given the time of a pandemic. And not just speaking of Canada, for sure, talking about the entire world, but the IAF, uh, IIF, the group that we're talking about that put out this report today, um, it, it, one of its concerns is that it says, yes, obviously the pandemic has taken a toll for sure. What's been going on has caused borrowing and debt to expand. But it says that since 2016, debt around the world has gone up by $52 trillion. So this is not just the result of the current crisis. No, well, let, you know, let's use the American example for a half a second. Donald Trump gets elected in 2016, really steps into the office in 2017, and early on he passed a big tax cut package. This tax cut, mostly for businesses, some for wealthy people, reduced the amount of money they gave the government, and the hope was that they would take that money, invest it in the economy, that would grow the GDP, and they would sort of go to a new level, a happy level. Well, the tax cut happened and the government revenues went down, but we didn't see the economic growth. All we saw people do was buy back shares and increase dividends. That drove up the stock market, but it didn't do anything for the government revenues. So guess what the American government has been doing? It's been borrowing at a record pace. It's not a trillion dollars a year. It's two trillion, three trillion dollars a year that just the American government alone has been borrowing because of the tax cut. So to, again, to go back to the study, they pointed out that, you know, okay, I understand why it's happening. How can I reverse this? How can I deleverage, get rid of the debt? What our governments would have to do is run surpluses, where it takes in more money than it spends, and then it uses that extra money to pay down debt. We actually had that happen under the Jean Chrétien, Paul Martin years, where they did run a surplus. And I thought at the time it was very wise what Mr. Chrétien said, when we have the extra dollars, half of the extra dollars we take will go to pay down debt. The other half will go to, to improve some services. And believe it or not, our debt-to-GDP ratio dropped a lot under the Jean Chrétien, Paul Martin years, but it just wasn't sustainable when they were turfed out and, and Harper came in, because remember, he had the big recession of 2007-8. It's hard for us to run surpluses the minute you do. Everyone says, well, well, cut my taxes, or you don't need exactly. that money. Yep, and we yep. say, but we've got to pay for what we borrowed some years ago. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Bubba, let me ask you this question. I, uh, you and I do not live, well, maybe you do, uh, but don't live in the world of multi, multi, multi-million dollar contracts. I'm not sure how they pay at CHCH, but that's not exactly what they do here at CHML. James Harden, basketball player with the Houston Rockets, according to the most reliable source in the NBA, James um, um, Wojnarowski, says that James Harden, turned down a multi-year 50, five zero, 50 million dollar a year contract offer okay. from the Rockets. Bubba, I would get naked, light myself on fire and run down King Street playing a tuba 
for half that amount of money. How can anybody turn down $50 million a year? Yeah, and, and just for your listeners, it, it, I, I believe it was a two-year extension that was $107 million. So on top of, I think he's probably in the 40, 40s, it's close to 40 right now. Uh, and that's American over, money, over, by sorry, the way. He's over 40 right now. Yeah, and that's American so, money, so that's yeah, a lot more here. So absolutely, yeah, you're right. You're yeah, good conversion on that. That's so true. Yeah, you know what? You're 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 right about that. But I think when you dig a little deeper, um, there's a couple of things that I think you have to look into. And there's the basic the basic thing is you want to win, right? And that's I think as uh, any athlete does, you want to be on a team that's committed to winning. And that's a team that's lost its general manager. That its general manager has been kind of pushed out. Uh, that was there for uh, over a decade, and built a team that pretty much went to the playoffs every year. Never got to the mountaintop, but at least they compete. So the general manager is gone. Russell Westbrook wants out, um, and the team just kind of seems like it's kind of gone as far as it can go. So I think James Harden, obviously, you know, he's the three-time um, scoring champion of the NBA is looking for brighter pastures. And that is the time, as a couple of days went on, more became uncovered that there's kind of a mutiny going on there within the team. Um, and I'm not talking just within the players, within the ownership and the team itself. Because the owner, Fertitta is his, is his last name, is one of Donald Trump's biggest supporters financial isn't supporters he isn't Fertitta? Back. isn't he one of the founders or the original guys who bought the ufc uh, i i i'm not sure i know they're they're i know that name yes is is uh, synonymous with ufc not sure if it's the same guy but i will say it i mean at least he is the guy that owns the he's a, a relatively new owner of 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 the houston rockets kind of came in there with a lot of fast talking and a lot of big dough um, and had to, you know, money to buy that franchise, which was, you know, one of the higher ones valued in the league. But his backing of Donald Trump uh, financially and, of course, vocally, um, you know what's going on in the NBA right now. Um, these guys, You're, you, you know what? They if, want no part of Perhaps. Uh, but for $50 million a year, um, you know, first yeah, of all, principle, it's principle, Scott. I mean, if you, it's, you're not talking about, you're, again, you're kind of thinking about you and I, right? These guys are multi-million dollars already. And, and if you know you can get the money elsewhere, which you can, why would you, why would you, why would you want to play for a guy that you don't believe uh, in their principles? Well, I'll tell you why, because I don't think you're going to be able to go through your life and not run into somebody in some position of authority or some position of power with whom you disagree on something. Right. And if, if every, if, if you are insisting on some sort of philosophical or political or social purity test before you will work for anybody, right. you're not going to be working for anybody very long. Cause look, Bubba, we all have different points of view on things. We all have different standards on things. Uh, you know, if, if, if someone is a, uh, if someone comes out with raging racist comments or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, yes, that, that's a, a different, I, I've not heard any allegations. This guy has made any kind of offensive statements. If it's simply nope. that he supports nope, a politician, yeah. um, boy, you're, you're limiting who you can play for pretty fast. Yeah, I still think, Scott, you're thinking of it as you and me and as a layman. Remember, sports, as you well know, and I know, and many of your listeners know, is sports is a totally different world. James Harden is one of the top 
three ball players, and it's going to be, has been for some time, and probably will continue to be for the rest of his career. He can make. We can't make that choice. He can make that choice. That's something that he's earned through his hard work and you know his dedication to the game and all those kind of things that has made him you know one of the superior um, basketball players in the league. So he can go through his life making those choices while he's a professional basketball player. And, and that's true. Obviously, you know, he has the freedom to do that. And if he's willing to turn this down and believes that maybe there's that money somewhere else, um, you know, I will. Who wouldn't want to have James Harden? (laughs) Well, yeah. Here's the other thing though, is how often, and, and I mean, it has happened at times, but how often do these things really work out? I can picture him saying, I got to get out of here because I need greener pastures. And then you look at a thing like um, Kevin Durant and you go, yeah, Kevin Durant won a championship, but has it worked out the way Kevin Durant expected his basketball career to work out as he's been, you know, he went to Golden State and won a championship, but was pretty widely seen as a contributor, but a guy who jumped on board an already winning ship. And now he was the MVP. I understand that. I understand. And, and look, I'm not saying he didn't contribute, right. but I'm saying he was a guy who went where they were already winning. No one's going to say that Golden State didn't have a championship caliber team before Go- no, before absolutely. he showed up. But they, 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 they were coming off a loss, though, to LeBron and, yeah. and, I know, and the Celtics. I know. Sorry, and the, and the Cleveland Cavaliers. And they wanted to make the move, and he wanted to, to go win a championship. And as you know, I think as, as in sports, especially in team sports, every once in a while you get the opportunity as, an, as a free agent to, to, to go find a suitor. And if, that's, if it's working both ways, well, then I, I can't fault the guy for that. I know you and I have discussed this before, but yeah, well, let me, let me go back for a second though. Cause you know what, it's something you said, and, and I find it really interesting now, if, if this story is that Harden wants out of Houston because he doesn't like the owner's politics and, and I'm, I'm, I'm accepting that that's true. And I assume then many other players in the NBA won't like the owner's politics. Mm-hmm. Do we create a scenario where I'll use that phrase again, where it gets problematic if you suddenly are requiring a a purity test for any anybody, not for misbehavior, right? I, I'm going to go back to my point. If you do something that creates an impossible situation, if you're wildly racist, if you sexually assault someone, if you whatever, mm-hmm. that, that's a different story. But if simply holding different views disqualifies you in the eyes of people, that's a dangerous place now almost for a league to be in. Um, yeah, I mean, again, though, I think it kind of depends on where you are in the financial and power scale of of that particular league. And you're right; there's a lot of guys that uh, that that will be able to make that choice. And I would say that's an overall a small percentage, whereas many many players will have to go to wherever, and you know, whoever wants to, you know, they will be as as every other sport goes, whoever pays me the most money, I'll go there. You know, because here's a great example. Um, oh, boy, it's, I'm having a quick blank out here. The owner of the New England Patriots. He, Robert Kraft. Robert Kraft. I mean, Tom Brady himself. These are, these are well-known Donald Trump supporters. Um, heck, I mean, I, I don't know how you felt about this, but I think, and I'd heard from a lot of people here at this station, 
and I was asked a question on a couple other radio stations if my thoughts about Bobby Orr and uh, Jack Nicholas had changed because of their outward support of Donald Trump days before the election. Um, you know, but if you're playing for, if you're actually playing for them and you have the opportunity and say, look, we don't, we don't mesh that way. Well, again, I, that's, that's, you know, that's up to the, the that's up to the player. Right. And, uh, yeah. My, my answer on that one is I have great hesitation about demanding that everybody think like I may, or like, you know, the, the popular position is, and if Jack Nicholas and Bobby Orr support him politically, um, but have done nothing wrong, have not cre- done anything. Like we're not talking about Donald Sterling, who was the owner of the Clippers, who, you know, there were allegations, not even allegations. There was tape that showed right. or that you could hear him saying horrible racist things right that that's it that's that is a clear cut that's a different scenario but uh, i get really concerned when we start to say everybody must think alike or they must be banished from polite society that but, that's a but i don't think any of those guys were thinking that or saying that on either no that's side. what we're hearing though with bobby Orr and with jack nicholas people are saying you thought that well now i can't support you anymore i'm saying if as long as you're behaving yourself and you're being a good citizen I, i'm okay with you having a different point of view than me and, and I, I'm, I'm probably with you, but I think that's kind of, it runs almost alongside with the, the, the James Harden argument that, you know what, I, and I got to admit, I mean, I'll say it right, right now publicly, um, Bobby Orr, I mean, and I, I guess because he just kind of said it, but, you know, what, what Jack Nicholas wrote on his Instagram page about, you know, if you don't vote Trump, you know, you're, you're, you know, voting for socialism and, I mean, he kind of went on and on, and I, I got to admit, I mean, I mean, I, I did lose a little bit deep down for Jack Nicholas. You know, like I, I'm sorry. I mean, I mean, again, this is this is a, 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 a argument that could go on forever. But there are things that Donald Trump has done in his four years in office, and and things that he said, and actions that he has had that that I can't support i or you know and i, I no, and that's and that's fine right. and, and I, I i i mean you hear that from a, an awful lot of people and look i think that most people would say there are things that have been done or said that you would disagree with or be offended by or whatever you know somewhere on that scale you want um uh, you know again i it, when we're talking about someone who simply is a political supporter or a friend of that person right Again, going back to the James Harden thing, and yeah, you're absolutely right. He has the power within this league as a star player to choose where he wants to go. I just, I just, I get worried when we, you know, what happens when the next person becomes an owner who it may not be Donald Trump, but they simply hold conservative views that the player doesn't like or, you know, whatever else. Like it's, it's a, it's an, it's a, it's a path that I'm not really sure. Um, you know, look, if you're the league, and you don't want to have this. Maybe, maybe Adam Silver, the commissioner, should say all leadership or uh, leadership, all ownership candidates will be vetted by a group of players. And if the players don't like him, he can't be the owner. And then well, you solve this thing. But that's well, a that's a you know that's crazy. No, I mean that would be crazy, Scott. I mean because remember you're talking about uh, what 55 million people still voted for Donald Trump, right? So there's still a lot of people that like Donald Trump and his views and what he stands for. And, and right now wish he was the president. Right. So, you know, not every, not every player is going to feel that way. And, 
you know, this is why I think we've, we've come, I think we've all come to the conclusion sometimes. I know this is a popular kind of line that, you know what, let's not talk about religion because then it can go anywhere, right? Um, because people have different views and, and sometimes that can cause create, that can create tension. Um, I just, you know, to the original point, I just think that, you know what, there's a small percentage of athletes, um, probably somewhere in the 5% to less view. Uh, but when we look at it, that, when they look at views of particular their owner, they would have choice, and good on them. You've earned that, and if you use to exercise, if you choose to exercise that, good on you. Because I'll tell you something, Scott. If I was in that percentage of broadcasters and I could make some choices, or there were things I heard about the owner of CHCH I didn't like, I'd probably be moving on to. Okay, you just gave me a perfect segue. I was, we're almost out of time, but I, I'm going to bring it up because you're talking about broadcasters and we're talking about money. Jim Nance, who we just saw Jim Nance do the Masters. Jim Nance does March Madness for CBS. He does the Masters for CBS. He does NFL football for CBS. I think there's something else he does for CBS, a big uh, event. I can't remember what it is, though. But he is media, yes. he, he is really that networks, that sports networks, that that networks face of sports. His broadcast partner on the NFL, Tony Romo, got a $17.5 million a year deal to do analysis of football games. It was an insane contract based largely on a few games last year where Romo was predicting the play before it happened. Everyone went, whoa. Well, first of all, ever since he signed that contract, I don't think he's doing that anymore, which I don't know what's going on. But the second thing is now Jim Nance's contract is coming up and he's saying, I want Tony Romo money. Do you blame him? Well, he's the established broadcaster, and he's yeah. been there for years, and I think he has every right to ask for that because, again, it's what the market will bear. And because you have to believe, if CBS can't afford him, ESPN, ABC, NBC will grab him. He's a huge name in the sport, in sports. Um, and you're right. I mean, he has every right to say that. And I, and I'll tell you something, I bet you Tony Romo would say, yeah, you, you should be making probably more than I am, right? You're the guy carrying the broadcast, but it's in, in just like sports, uh, broadcasting and broadcasters, it's kind of become all in the same. What will the market bear? Because if you don't get it somewhere, chances are you can get it somewhere else. Except for one thing, and that is CBS for how many years now has been the host of the Masters, has been the network that broadcasts it. And if Jim Nance leaves CBS, I I mean, I know that, as I say, March Madness and the NFL are big things on his slate, but he is the Masters voice. He is the guy. He coined the phrase, a tradition like no other. You're you're right, Scott, but I'll tell you this. ABC does the, the, the Open Championship, and NBC has the rights to the U.S. Open. So if I can't do the Masters, I, I still got the, one of the other majors in my back pocket. And I guess if you can get $17.5 million or $18 million bucks, you can uh, you can buy a ticket to become a patron at the Masters and just walk around like the rest of the schmoes. <laughs> He's probably got some, uh, some privilege. I'm sure if they, if they saw him at the door, even though none of us could do it, I'm sure they'd let him in. I'll tell you something. When I was down there a few years ago, uh, I saw him walking to his perch by the 18th green on the last day. And he needed security because that, that is how 
much he is seen as symbolic and like a part of the furniture there. He's almost like part of the grounds. When yeah. you see Jim Nance, there was, uh, you know, I don't want to overstate it to say there was a reverence for him. No. And I think that the people who were there were feeling reverent anyway. If you're, if you're on the grounds of Augusta on a Sunday of the Masters, there's probably not a lot in the world that's bothering you. You're probably feeling pretty happy. And so anybody famous you see, you're probably feeling pretty good about it anyway. So no one's going to like chew his head off, but there was a, it was an amazing, as I say, almost reverence for the guy there. I, I, I would, I, you know what I'd love to know? We got to go. What I would love to know is if it came right down to it and you're Jim Nance and it's a question of $14 million a year versus $17 million a year. So you're, you're loaded no matter what, how much is doing the masters worth to you? That's a personal thing. Sure. I know, but it's, uh, and I don't know that there's too many other sporting events you know, just quickly, that fall into that category. Running, I, know, I know you're running out of time. Yeah, go. You know I me, mean, think about it. We just had a very similar thing happen here in this country. I mean, how, I mean, how many gray cups has Chris Cuthbert called? Yes, yes. Right? And Sportsnet upped the ante, and after many, many years with CBC and then TSN much for much longer, he's gone. He's but gone. he's at but, now, and he is but, now, he is now given. He's the for me. He's the sound of the great cup. I I don't disagree with that at all. But Chris Cuthbert also is equally as well known for calling hockey. Don't forget, he was the golden goal voice when Cosby scored the golden goal. Right. So you know when he goes to Sportsnet, it's not like he is leaving the thing that really made him. Uh, and I'm not sure the Masters made Jim Nance, but I think the Masters has seriously. Um, made Jim Nance into a household figure more than just doing NFL games would have, because lots of guys do NFL games. Mm-hmm. Anyway, fascinating stuff. We never even got to the NHL and the players fighting over escrow, which is always maybe the most exciting discussion anybody can have. Let's talk escrow. I won't even touch it on CH until it's done, till they're ready. Um, yeah, you know what? I'm I'm getting a little worried that uh, like the NHL, we do have to go. I'm, I, the NHL has to get a deal done pretty soon with its players, and it looks like they're just, you know, they're butting heads again. It's like, come on, guys, figure it out. The Scott Radley Show, weekday evenings from six to eight on nine hundred CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.